0: Start with a summary, but again, just as a simple reminder that as I committed, when we started looking at the book of Revelation, I'm doing it from a book by Watchman Nee called uh, Come Lord Jesus. And again, the reason that I like the book and the perspective that the book brings is because uh, when he wrote it, he wasn't looking at commentaries and he wasn't looking at other people's material. He was having to really look at the book of Revelation and listen to the Holy Spirit and because of that, the approach is a little bit different. And as we started a few weeks ago looking at this, in the fact that it is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and we've all heard this before and know it very well, it was given by God to Jesus, Jesus to an angel and an angel to John. So John is actually the scribe that's writing this revelation that was given to Jesus. He's writing it down. But the significance of this is the fact that this revelation wasn't designed to tell us about something prophetic. As much as that's true, the revelation was designed to be a blessing to us right now. Not only future relevance. It was given so that if we would look at it correctly, it would give us a powerful revelation and understanding right now. Because remember, every revelation is the beginning of our next encounter with God. So he's giving this revelation so we should know that there's relevance to it that we're absolutely missing because we're framing it as something prophetic. And we've already seen numerous times over the last two or three weeks things that I had missed simply because I was considering it in a book of future events. So the the approach that I'm studying to prepare, but as I'm studying, I'm not looking to be just absolutely correct or in detail about the symbolism. Again, I told you last week and the weeks before, if you want that, I can put books in your hands and you can read until your heart's content because there's been many, many people who've done it and it's just not my purpose. I'm looking through these scriptures, looking for the relevance right now and what God would have us know right now. So looking at chapter two and three, I'm going to give just a summary of the two books, and then I'm going to probably only be able to get through the church at Ephesus if I get that far. Chapter 2 and 3 speaks to us about seven churches, and those were churches that all existed at the time, but every one of those seven churches had some different type of a situation. We know that they represent seven time periods in church history along with their described characteristics. So there's not only the church, there was a real church, the characteristics of that church that were different from church to church, but it also, we understand that it describes seven time periods. That's the traditional thinking. But this is one of those things that I'd never seen before when I started reading it differently. I think we have to recognize that the instruction to John was to send this revelation to all seven churches. So what would that mean? So the church at Thyatira didn't just get their letter. They got their letter and the six others. Every church got seven letters. And I think that there's significance in that, not only for them, because when we start thinking of seven time periods, we connect ourselves to the church at Ephesus and see that the instruction to the church at Ephesus was you've lost your first love. So we have a tendency to say, well, that's describing this church. Is describing our current church age. We connect ourselves with that time period. What does it mean? What would be the significance if even then John's instruction that he was being given was make sure that every church gets every letter? Why would that be necessary? Why not just the one that's relevant to them? They're all relevant. They're all relevant to every church. He addressed one, but the characteristics in the others you're also going to find in your church. We should not, in any form or fashion, connect ourselves to one church because it seems to be the one in the right order for us. And it actually says something about us that we're connected to. And you're going to see here in a few minutes just how significant that is. So all the messages were relevant then. All of the messages are relevant now. We need to consider what was being spoken to every church, even though we've always heard that the church at Ephesus best describes our current situation the seven angels is the addressee of each of these letters so they're they're written to the angel of each church so and we know we talked about this other day we know who those angels are we're given that very specifically in Revelation chapter one we know who these angels are and believe that they're not angels at all because the word that's used there is the word messenger if you begin to think okay well are these messengers of he- from heaven and you realize that the message wouldn't be relevant to them. Are they angels that were here on the earth? And you realize that it's not relevant to them. So by narrowing this down, we begin to recognize that they're probably talking about the pastors of each of these churches. They're really not talking about an, an angelic being. They're talking about a messenger that was connected to that church. We know th- that these letters were written to a specific person Maybe the pastors being the people that these were given to, even though the message is given to the messenger, it's absolutely certain that the intended audience or target was the entire church, that it wasn't just for these leaders to hear. In each of the letters, the Lord says something of himself. Every time that something he says about himself is supposed to be the answer to their problem. And I'm, I'm going to step through these. I'll go through them pretty quickly. What he says about himself is addressing the issue that he says to each of these churches. So at Ephesus, who had lost their first love, he says, I am the one who walks in the midst of the golden candlestick. He's saying, I am the one who's, who is intimate with you. I'm, there's no one else. If you're, you know, There's no other one to love or to attach yourself to. So he's saying to Ephesus, who lost her first love the one who walks in the midst of the golden sticks, to Smyrna. Being a suffering church, he says, I am the one who was dead and lives. So he's really addressing the fact that they were suffering and that they should count it as, even count martyrdom as a blessing. The third one, Pergamum. It's a worldly church. So he says, I am the one with the sharp two-edged sword dividing and cutting out the world. He's saying, for, for a church who has allowed the world to come in, I am the, that sharp two-edged sword who can correctly cut away those things of the soul, leaving those things of the spirit. Thyatira is a corrupted, adulterous church. And he says, I am the one with eyes as a flame of fire and feet like brass to inspect and to judge. Sardis is a dead church. The one who has the spirit of life and the shining star. Philadelphia, the church faithfully keeping the truth. He says, I am he who is holy and true and who opens wide to them the door of labor. Laodicea is a church full of human opinions, the head over all creation. So a couple of things. One, when you begin to to hear very quickly what the problem is in each church. In Ephesus, they lost their first love. Smyrna being a suffering church. Pergamum is a worldly church. Ask yourself, when you look across the church world today, how many of these things are you hearing? What is one of the the awful things that has happened within the Christian church as we brought the world in? So many things that we do within church, we do because that's the way the world does them. Here's a big one. Why do churches vote? Find that in the scripture. The only time it's done, one time. That they demonstrate any type of a vote is when the disciples were being disobedient and trying to pick a replacement uh, for Judas. So they come up with a couple of nominees and they cast their votes and they come up with Matthias and you never hear from him again because God says you go to Jerusalem and you wait. You don't go elect a new a, a new member because who was to be the twelfth disciple, the twelfth apostle? Who was that supposed to be? It wasn't Matthias. Who was it? It's was Paul. Why Paul? What's the uniqueness? Why was it Paul? Every one of them were called specifically by Jesus. Who was the last one called specifically by Jesus, where Jesus actually appeared and called him? It's Paul. He was that 12th apostle. Why do we vote? Because it becomes a real short way to make a decision when we don't want to pray, listen for the Holy Spirit. We vote. You know, there are practical things that our bylaws say that we're going to vote on. If we're going to buy property or we're going to sell property, then those things, say, involve the church and vote. I will have been here nine years in two weeks. I don't remember the last time we voted about anything. I'm not sure we ever have, but if we have, I don't remember it. Again, why don't we have a budget? It doesn't make practical sense that we ought to have a budget. No. You know, where do we get that practice? We get it from the world. We set ourselves up, organize ourselves. I know there's numerous churches that do pastor reviews. They do a yearly review of the pastor. Where's that coming from? It comes from the corporate world. I don't want you to have to wait to do an evaluation. If, if you know that I'm not God's person here, then I sure don't want to wait for an evaluation to say, you need to improve. We need to set your goals. We need to make sure that you understand what it is as a congregation we want you to do. So we're going to set goals to make sure that you know that we want the church to grow by 10% by this time next year. And it's just the world and the church has invited the world in and that's the way we function never was designed and he's telling them there that that's what's going on in thyatira it's a corrupted adulterous church we might have a tendency to say well we're not quite that what constitutes corruption if i have a jar of water and it's just water and i put salt in it what have i done i have corrupted it i've changed it from the state from which it was intended that's corruption we think of it on a grand scale how badly corrupted are we? What was God's design for us? That we would, as believers, have exactly what he had. And he tells them in John 14:15 and 16, I'm going away, but in, the, in my going, I am going to give you exactly what I have with my father. What he designed for me to have for these three and a half years so that I could actually put a face and a name on God himself. What I have, I'm going away so that you can have also. So we were designed under God's design to have everything Jesus had. We don't have to wonder about what the design of God was. Because at Pentecost, that which Jesus had, that he only had at Pentecost, every believer had. He gave them the design that he had with his father. Have we betrayed that? Absolutely. If we don't have the Holy Spirit as the basis from which we function, we have corrupted the design. When our motivation begins to grow the church, fill the budget, get people involved. As honorable as all that sounds, that is not God's design. So we realize pretty quickly that we're connected with each one of these stories. Sardis, a dead church. I will not even say anything about that. Philadelphia, a church faithfully keeping the truth. That was the closest to, to doing what God wanted. Laodicea is a church full of human opinions. Man, that is a tough one because... Again, when I went to San Marcos to teach, that pastor couldn't hardly talk except to express the opinions of these are Armenian or this is Calvinism or whatever. It's like, would you just stop expressing the opinions of men? Would you just stop speaking what you have heard somebody say? Tell me something that's original to you. Tell me something that God has said to you. And the church today is absolutely penetrated by man's opinion. And you can tell it. It's not hard because most pastors preparation is not to read the Bible and wait for the Holy Spirit to speak. It's to go read the commentaries. What do the commentaries say? That's where you begin to prepare. You begin to prepare off of other people's opinions. So again, we recognize very quickly that the, the messages to these seven churches was not just that we lost our first love. The message to us today, the relevant truth for us today is that we are people who lost our first love. We are a worldly church. We're a corrupted, adulterous church, dead churches, churches full of human opinions. And we realize that we don't get to escape any one of the messages to these seven churches. Because I've heard revelations taught many times just like you have. And every time we dismiss the other six because we say what's wrong with the church today is we've lost our first love. And it stops right there. Well, that is true. I, w- I will not deny it. But the greater message is the reason that John was told to send all letters to all the churches is because every message was relevant then and every message is relevant now. The seven locations in the, of these seven churches, every location has meaning. Ephesus means desire or loosing, letting go of their first love. Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, which means bitter. Pergamum, a high tower, the church with worldly power and position, probably referring to a time under Constantine. Thyatira means sacrificing untiringly. When you look at this in history, it, it moves from Constantine into the Catholic system, where there were special priesthood and tremendous amount of idol worship. Sardis means revival or restoration, the time of the Reformation. Philadelphia, brotherly love, a time of church recovery that led to unity and leaving behind all differences and joining together. These are actually time periods in history where we've actually been. Laodicea, the day of people's opinion, as certainly is exemplified in our churches today. When I look across this list from a personal point of view, the one that is eating our lunch is that last one, the churches of human opinion. And we feel the freedom to do it. What's the outcome when we teach from human opinion? Division, absolutely division. What was supposed to be the answer? If we understand when Jesus asks the question, who do men say that I am? What happens first? What are they offering back to him first? Some say, Elijah, what is that? That is their opinion. Some say this, some say this. What is that? It's their opinion. What happens when somebody talks about Jesus today? What do we offer each other? We offer opinion. Was it supposed to be that way? Never. Because again, what happens immediately after when Peter speaks this truth out? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. What happens in that next moment? Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. The reason you're blessed, the reason that you're standing out in this moment is not that you got the right answer. It's that you got the right answer by revelation. This isn't hard to figure out. How do we come to the same conclusion? How do we come into into agreement about anything that's taught within this Bible? About who Jesus is. About who God is. About what it meant for him to die on the cross. About what baptism is supposed to mean. How do we come together? We will never sit down and come into agreement. We'll never intellectually get there. What did he intend for us to do? Let God reveal it. By whom? The Holy Spirit. We have to get opinion out of the church. Even Paul in the book of Acts, when he's talking about marriage, he stops and says, I need for you all to know what I'm fixing to say is my opinion. He makes special reference to the fact he did not get this from God. He got it from years of experience, and he states it very clearly. This is by experience I'm talking, not by revelation. We are a fragmented, broken group of churches because we have leaned strongly... On men's opinion, and that opinion is going to vary by where they went to school, what the orientation of that school was. It's going to be defined by denomination, because this denomination is supposed to believe this, and this one's going to believe this. And so, if we're not saying the same thing, what is it the evidence of? We're not listening to the spirit. Again, you know, First Corinthians thirteen: the body has many members, but one spirit. Why is he drawing attention to that? Who knows a man better than the spirit of a man? Who knows God better than the spirit of God? If we want to know him, who's going to have to tell us so that when you and I sit down together in our understanding of God, we'll both have to say, I didn't learn this. It was revealed to me. And we are terribly, terribly crippled by the fact that we are churches of human opinion. And I hope it in us, we resolve personally that that day for us will be over. That's why if some of you were here that first Sunday that I, after I became your pastor, I did this pretty often back then. I'd have everybody stand and raise their hand and say, I do so solemnly swear that I will not believe a single thing that Randy says. And I'm serious, joking, but serious. I don't want you to believe me. I don't want you to listen to me and believe what I say, unless when I say it, it no longer becomes words, it becomes truth. It's no longer words spoken, it's truth revealed, truth received, because that will make a difference in your life. I have a pet peeve. I think I have many. I have heard people say, "I love going to that class because that teacher knows so much history." They, they just how all this came together and and it's fascinating to hear. I ran into a woman in Austin a couple of years ago and she was telling me the church that she went to in Houston. And she said there were 1500 people in her Sunday school class. And the teacher was an attorney and said, just a huge class. And she said, he just knows so much history. Said he knows so much detail about this person and this person He just brings all this stuff together. You know what my question is? What difference does it make? I can think of two times if, and I, again, you've heard me say this many times. I believe that Jesus's life is perfect theology. We ought to be able to look at Jesus's life, understand it And be able to say that's true for me as well. I can think of two times, maybe one right now. I can think of once immediately in Matthew where they come to Jesus and they say, can we divorce for any cause? And Jesus says, it was not so in the beginning. He goes back and he gets a point in history and brings it forward and talks about Moses giving those divorces because it was convicting to the people who were asking the question. So history had a powerful relevance on immediately what was occurring. It wasn't fascinating. It was truth caused an immediate change in the person that, they were, that it was shared with. The other one I, uh, that I can come up with is when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with these two men who didn't yet know who he was. It says he began at Moses and he taught them all things because he was teaching them something in the spirit that they had only understood in their intellect. Had no reason to give them history for history's sake. Because honestly, what difference does it make if it doesn't draw you closer and and give you understanding about what this life looks like right now? It's fascinating. I mean, you can really get into it. You know, I I shared recently the fact that in the intertestamental period under Joseph Asmonia, his son Judas was such a tremendous guerrilla warrior that he crippled Rome when they would come into Israel. He was known because he was a guerrilla warrior. That's when he took on the name Judas Maccabees, Judas the Hammer, because of the way he fought. Rome, trying to stop it, came to his father, Joseph Asmonea, and said, If you can stop this, then we will make concessions to you. We'll move you and your family to Rome, and we will not cause you to assimilate into the Roman culture. You will be able to keep your own religion. When Jesus is born and Jesus is growing up, that's why we have Jerusalem under Roman rule with practicing Judaism, because it was an agreement made with Joseph asmonia. What difference does that make? What would have been the chances that Jesus's message would have ever heard if, if the Jews had been forced to assimilate into the Roman culture? But before they realized that Jesus wasn't teaching Judaism, Christianity had spread all over the world. They couldn't stop it. See, that was history shaping a current moment. But even that, besides being interesting, if it doesn't do something to engage us into the reality of my current Christian life and hearing from the Holy Spirit, obeying what the Holy Spirit says and functioning under the reality of the church, it becomes a distraction. We're fascinated with the distraction and realize after years and years of sitting in classes where great history is being taught, I'm still not any better at engaging the reality of God and helping somebody with the truth from, from his work. I've heard lots of history, love sitting in the class, and it has done absolutely nothing to engage me in the current Christian life. Man's opinion, fascinating as it is, is not engaging to the level that we need it to engage. Also, in this summary, there are seven I know's which is certainly expected of the inspector, Jesus, standing among these churches. Uh, so it's no great surprise that he would say seven times, I know. I'm not going to go through that. I'll read this in just a second. But if you want to write these down, here are the verses where the I knows are. Ephesus, chapter 2, 4 and 5. Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 10. Pergamum, chapter 2. 14 through 16. Thyatira, chapter 2, 20 through 25. Sardis, 3, verses 2 and 3. Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 11. Laodicea, chapter 3, 17 through 20. So there's seven times, one in each letter, where Jesus says, I have inspected, and he's telling them, I know. I know something about you. There are also seven calls With each letter, including, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me give you those. Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 7. Smyrna, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 17. Thyatira, chapter 2, verses 26 through 28. Sardis, chapter 3, verse 5. Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 12. Laodicea chapter 3, verse 21. So those are the seven calls after the seven I knows. Now, here's one of those points. Simply stated, simply believed, but missed in its significance. The fact that the Spirit is required makes it very clear that even though God has spoken this revelation to John, it will take the Holy Spirit for any reader To understand it, that's why he says, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is being spoken from God to John. The revelation of Jesus has now been given to John. He's speaking it, but he's saying very clearly, If you're going to get it, if you're going to understand the significance of the message that's being given to you, you're going to have to listen to the Holy Spirit. What difference does that make? All the difference. How many assessments have we done trying to figure out what's gone wrong in the church? And we wring our hands over the fact that something's not working. What does it say here? We're, if we want to know that answer, where are we going to have to go? We're going to have to listen to the Spirit. What are the chances our evaluation will tell us something that is right? You know, at the time, love loved Dale Cain and the truth and the preaching and everything that he's brought to me and to others. And I look back on the time that we spent, what was it called in uh, just a time of church evaluation? Intentional interim? Yeah. And so we did a lot of studies. We looked at a lot of things. We looked at history. We looked at plans. We looked at mission statements and everybody was kind of engaged in some team or the other. Anybody still have a copy of that and and, and read it often so that we can figure out what what we need to be doing right? Nope. I found a copy of it the other day and it was just interesting. And I won't even discount the fact that there was some good came out of it. What's the chances we will evaluate something and get it right? Zero. Absolutely zero. So it would have been an interesting approach if we would have said, okay, we're not going to sit down and we're not going to have teams and we're not going to try to figure this out, but we are going to put ourselves before the Holy Spirit long enough to actually see and understand. You know, Judy asked me a question a while back and I sat down, as I've told you before, and I wrote down 37 things as fast as I could think of them that we need to reteach. Some of them just because they're just error in the teaching. Some of them because we're tragically wrong in our teaching. And I could think of 37 before I could turn around. I was just sitting and it as fast as I could type. There were 37 of them. I've added a few since then. There's probably 40 on that list now. Man, it's like we had better understand that if we're going to really do something different, it's going to have to be the spirit who reveals it. This is just personal to me. When I look down that list of 37 things, those were not 37 things I've come up with. Those are 37 things over the course of teaching over the last nine years that the Holy Spirit has convicted me that there's error in our teaching. Big things. Teaching that there's such a thing as a sinner's prayer. And that by that prayer, salvation can come. That has caused us year after year to say to kids and say to adults, if you'll just repeat after me that this prayer, then you'll be saved. Think that's done any damage? I mean, that stuff needs to be stopped. I didn't come up with that. As a matter of fact, when it was said to me, it, was, it offended me. It's like, I've been doing this for years. Surely I hadn't been wrong all this time. Ah, I looked and listened and let the Holy Spirit tell me. Yep, yeah, been wrong all these years. I didn't figure these things out. To me, those things that I've, I were able to list is because I, I do believe. There's no arrogance in this. It's because I have done my best to tune my ear to the Holy Spirit for a while now. I'll testify early in my ministry. No, it was just intellect figured out, keep going. But I can't do that anymore. I have to wait on revelation from the Holy Spirit. I don't have anything to say. So they had to know if they were going to get it. They had to get it from the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who saw the condition of these churches and became the bearer of truth. They sees and speaks the same Holy Spirit speaks to us now that's just a brief summary of chapters two and three letters to seven churches that include those things. So let's read the first one. we are going to take a look at the church in Ephesus unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand. We know it's Jesus who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So we know he's walking among the seven churches. Here's that. I know it's included in all seven I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou, thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, And do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So there you see, as we just talked about in this letter, there's the I know. There's the call, each one of these things included. Now here's one of those relevant truths that I hope we get. He says unto the angel or unto the pastor, or unto the messenger of the church of Ephesus, write. Randy, it's a stretch if you're finding anything of real significance in that. What would have been the difference if he had said, I want to write this to the church in Ephesus? What's the difference between him saying the church of Ephesus and the church in Ephesus? If we were to say, this is First Baptist Church in Sundown, and over there 15 miles is the First Baptist Church in Leveland, what are we basically saying in that? That this church in Sundown has nothing to do with that church in Leveland. Because when we say this is the church of Sundown, this is the church of Leveland, it is exactly the same church. That we are connected, and I have no privilege nor right to be able to draw a distinction between us. This is a real problem because we don't see ourselves as connected. We certainly say we know we're Christians and someday we're going to heaven. But this is that basis of the barriers that we're now tolerating that we should never tolerate. He's identifying there's one church. This is the church of Ephesus. This is the church of Thyatira. This is the church of Philadelphia. He's saying about them, this is where they meet. But there is no ownership within that place of that church. Think that's a problem today? Mm Mm-hmm. So when I find these differences, and the Holy Spirit brings this conviction like this, that of says, this is one church, and this is the church of this group, this is the church of this group, this is the church of here. But when we say it's in, then it's like, okay, that's a church standing by itself in this city. This is a church standing by itself in this city. And God's saying, I would never design that. I didn't design many churches. I designed one. And again, this is the basis. This is my heart for saying, we need to be careful truly careful. Anytime we create a man-made division like denominations, if somebody can find them in the Bible, I'll change my mind. I just can't find them. I can't find the basis of denominations yet. We have to have a name. So we have one. So to me, it's worth noting that this letter is written to the messenger, even as opposed to Paul's letter that was written and addressed to all believers. When Paul wrote the epistle to Ephesus, he, he makes it very clear in the introduction that he's writing to the church. He doesn't say to the messenger, what would have changed by now? Why would it be different here now? Because they had no longer had ears to hear. He spoke it to the messenger. He spoke it to the one who would still hear it because the church itself didn't have ears to hear. That's why he says, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. Again, at Ephesus... Means loosened, lost itself, drawn away, and has been severely damaged. In verses 2 and 3, these are the words of commendation of the Lord. He says, I know your good works, I know your toil, your diligent labor, your patience to carry the weakness of other people. Regarding the management of the church, he commends them and says, You don't bear evil men, you don't accept workers carelessly, they tested the apostles. They displayed spiritual discernment. So there's a great deal of accommodation as he speaks to them. He says, even regarding the world, they patiently bear for the Lord's name and do not grow weary. They are basically, as described here, near perfect. In verse four, the words of indictment. So even though there's such a great description and acknowledgement of this church, the Lord still has something against it. She has lost her first love. So the relevant question for us is how could this happen? How could a church so recognized by Paul, you go back and read Ephesus, man, it is a powerful book. He's talking about unity. He's talking about, you know, you were dead and now you're alive in Christ and he's tore down the barriers between you. And I mean, it is in Ephesians three, he talks about this is the great work of the church to put on display the manifold wisdom of God. Beautifully written, chapter three, so that we can understand the depth and the height and all that's in there. And you realize just the robust reality of Paul writing to this church and all that was going well. How could this happen? Well, if we pay attention, I think the Holy Spirit has already told us. And if we will pay attention, we'll recognize that what happened in Ephesus has happened today. It is no different. There was an overemphasis on performance and activity, a loss of intimacy in the relationship, busyness, an overemphasis on what we are supposed to do and a loss of fascination with who we are in relationship to who he is. We've started focusing on doing instead of being. Again, when I heard Amanda preaching a while back and speaking on, you know, in her sermon, we're not human beings doings were human beings. I think there had been a truth that had been trying to form in me. When she said it, all those pieces, little bits of information suddenly jailed into a truth. And I recognized this is about being and not about doing. And that's when it really hit me that focusing on doing is what's caused us to divide because we can't figure out what as Christians we're supposed to do. We just disagree on it. But we should be able absolutely to agree on who we are as a being. Who are we in relationship to who God is? The shift should create unity, intimacy. Third, an overemphasis on education and little awareness or focus on revelation. I could put a long list here. I just tried to grab some of the ones that were bigger to me. We are in trouble. If I put the word God here in the middle, how do we form our opinion of God? How do we say who he is, know who he is intimately and personally so that he will remain our first love? Well, unfortunately, when we, when I, when I draw this on the flip chart, I I write the word God, then I put a line right under it. And what happens as I'm writing this right under the word God and under that line, I write the word man, because what happens the way most of us form an opinion of God is we start with man and all of his characteristics, all of his qualities Good. We improve it to the maximum so that we can look at man and his characteristics and say, oh, I've improved it enough. Now I know what God is like. So we simply go from man and we reason up to know God. What's the problem with it? If we start with man as the understanding of God, we first recognize that man is variable. I can move him on this scale. I can make him happy and I can make him angry. I can please him or I can make him sad. If God's going to react to me, then that means I have power over him. No, it's not true. But what has it led us to believe? It leads me to believe that some days when I don't do so well, God's wringing his hands and he's disappointed in me. He's adjusted to me. He's moved by whether he's pleased with me because I'm doing a lot or displeased with me because I'm not doing anything. He's pleased with me because I'm giving more or I'm giving less. And we make God move based on us. Because we started with man, who is variable, said that's what God is like. But what does the Bible say? How are we supposed to know God? Go back to John 14. I'm going away, but I'm sending unto you the spirit of truth, who will lead you into all truth. If I want to know God, where do I have to go? Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Who knows a man better than the spirit of man? Who knows you better than you? Who knows God better than the spirit of God? That's what the verse says. So if we want to know him, who has to tell us the spirit of God? What would happen then? What would be the likelihood that the spirit of God would tell me something about God and tell Tim something different about God? Nope, not going to happen. But it also takes away the reality that if I do something displeasing today, I cannot change how he loves me. He's not waiting for me to do more so that he can be happier with me or waiting for me to be, do less so that he can be disappointed with me because his love is not based on me. It's coming straight out of him. What a relief. What pressure. What freedom that brings when we realize that God's not in heaven frowning at me because I disappointed him today. He's not responding. He's not reacting to me. And it's, it's a strange arrogance to believe so. The fourth one. The replacement of in him with the words for him. And I taught on this Sunday morning. I went through every scripture in our Sunday school class in the New Testament where the words for him or for God or for Christ was used. There's about, maybe not 20 of them, but there's probably 15 or 16 of them. And I went one by one so that everybody could see that there's not a single one in the New Testament where we are told to do anything for God. Not even one. One. Do you know how often that comes out of pastor's lips? Routinely. Listen for it. It's unbelievable. We even sing a song. I cringe every time we sing it. You're the God that we're living for. Like, I want to change it every every time we come to it. We sing it Sunday. It's like, no, it's it's not correct. We don't live for him. We live in him. Living for him has created a competitive Christianity that says, we better do more. And as long as I'm doing more than you, it's... That's what competitive Christianity has created. I just have to do better than you. Because that's who we compare. We don't compare ourselves, but with each other. And we somehow believe if I'm doing more than the people around me, that God will be tickled to death. Anything done from a heart other than that of love that will lead us astray. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus in the sight of God. And of our Father. 1 Corinthians thirteen two. when we know very well, and though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries, all knowledge, and, and have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and, ha- and have not love, I am nothing. So we, we recognize that anything done apart from a love relationship will lead us astray. Verse 5, the way to restoration. He says, Remember therefore whence thou art fallen. Understand the cause of this regression. The cause must be found. He's telling them, you need to know what has caused you to do this. And the perfect outward appearance that he describes hides the fact that they have already fallen inwardly. You can walk into a church and you can look at the congregation and you can hear the music and you can see the people and they come and they sit and they watch and they... Sing and they leave and the appearance is great church. If there is no intimacy and only the intimacy that the Holy Spirit can create, the church has already inwardly fallen. They may be able to sustain for a long time, but they have inwardly fallen church by church by church. We watch where that's true. He says, and then, and repent, change your mind. Once you know it, change your mind and do the first works. In the letter to the Ephesians, we read that they were, in verse 1-1, faithful. In chapter 3, verse 17, they let Christ be Lord. So from our great history, we know that we are unified and that obedience was designed to rule the day. When obedience and hearing the voice of God is replaced with activity and performance, he says the candlestick will be removed we read this a couple of weeks ago, the words in Malachi in chapter one, he said, I wish somebody would come and nail the doors to this church closed. He said, because I've left it. You're going through the motions. He said, I just wish somebody would close the doors. That's God saying, I have taken from you. You can sit here and be an organization and you can move and do what you want, but I have removed the candlestick from you. I, th- I think it would be interesting across America or maybe across the world to see how many churches are functioning under the name of church, but the candlestick has been removed and they don't know it. They do not know it because it looks like it did yesterday and it looks like it did last week. And then in the last couple of verses in, in verse six, he says, in dealing with the Nicolaitans, that, that means those who conquer the people. And when I looked up the definition and was studying it. says, or, or a party that lusts after power and takes upon itself the positions of leadership. Any of that happening? Any pastors, any deacons, any apostles within the Christian church taking on the positions of leadership, giving the church direction? It would be much easier to come up with a list of those who don't because of the majority who do. I don't claim to have particular understanding of anything greater than anybody else's. But I know one thing. The minute that I become the leader of this church, we're desperately in trouble. And I won't do it. I will not do it. Outside of the Holy Spirit telling me, sharing with me, giving me direction, that I can say to you, thus saith the Lord. It ain't, it's not going to happen. I can't do it. I can function on a practical basis. I Chris to build cabinets. I'll be, I didn't consult with God about it. Maybe I should have, but I didn't. I think he gave us reason and common sense, and that's still as much a gift of God. And I'm... And And maybe I'm wrong in that. Maybe all those details should be taken to him. I live in peace with the spirit of God, but to give this church direction to call this an emergency room, wouldn't dare outside the fact that I could clearly say where I was standing and what I was doing when the Holy Spirit the words, he said, will you accept this mantle? And that's what, that's exactly what I presented to the board and to the deacons at the time. And then I came in and I asked the church and the answer was yes. That was not my idea. That was not my leadership. That was simply God speaking in obedience. And when it gets replaced and we think that we're leaders, then he says, the Lord hates the works of these people. You know, he said, I hate the work as you do of the Nicolaitans, those who conquer people who put people under submission and become the leader. He says, I hate it. And then the last verse, he that has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, all of them. So the warning must mean that we have no ears to hear what God says. And then he says, this will be your reward. He that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Where are people eating now? Mostly of the two trees that that he spoke of in Genesis. He said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which tree are most churches eating from today? He said, eat freely from the tree of life. I can tell you the quickest way to tell is if they are a church trying to follow rules, I can tell you which tree they're eating from. I had a question come to me. It's been several years ago now. A person terribly upset because their church bylaws say that they cannot send flowers except to church members. And this church member's mother had died and and somebody wanted to send flowers from the church. And they said, no, that can't happen even if you pay for them because that means we went against the bylaws. Which tree are they eating from? Good and evil. Trying to follow the rules, trying to figure it out. And I I hate to say this, but that's really not an exception. When there's questions come up, where do most people go? What do the bylaws say? Can we do it or can we not do it? We're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, eat from the tree of life. If you find that love again, you find that intimacy again. If you understand really what's happened, it's allowed you to unfold and become the church that you become. Where you've lost your first love. Where you've actually fallen and don't even know it. Figure it out. And and you'll eat from the tree of life every day. What's the difference? What would happen if we ate from the tree of life every day? What would our nutrition be? It would be life. It would be creation. It would be healing. He said, I give you permission to eat from the tree of life. If you're going to do the other, you'll be cut off. You won't be able to do it. Again, for for me, studying this time, looking for the relevant truth, not dismissing it because it's telling us of something back there, this is history, or telling us about something that's going to happen in the future, kind of leaves me... In the place where I am, where I don't even have to consider it because he's telling us something that's already happened or he's telling us something that's going to happen. And I missed the truth for today. This is relevant truth. He's talking to us. Our definition of God in in the essence of who he is and what he's established requires the reality of all three. So when you remove anything regarding the Holy Spirit, you said, I'm not a church anymore. Because I cannot be the body of Christ if that's not fully 100% believed committed, accepted. So that when we say that we're saved, we're saying that I have been rescued and I have been established as a child of God. I'm a member of a body, which says I have fully realized that I am spirit. I'm a soul. I'm a body. How successful are we as a body? If we leave one of those three parts out, well, how successful is the body of Christ? If we live one of those three parts out? you take the spirit away from a man and he's not functioning in the spirit. What other creature has a functioning body and a functioning soul, but no spirit? Animals. So if you take the spirit of God away from a man, you're going to basically have a sophisticated animal. read one time in, in the German Bible, when it talks about a soul man, the German word is man animal, the animal man. Because that's what a man is. Except the difference is that when God didn't give animals a spirit, he did give them something. Instinct. What happens to a man if you take away the spirit of God? We're functioning less because we don't have instinct. We will move to self-destruction that an animal knows better. I just think it's, it's part of this stopping long enough and say, what's relevant to right now? Because he's saying, if this doesn't change, if you don't find this first love, if you don't understand what that means, then I will remove your standing as a church. We know that, because these churches died, they're not in existence anymore. So we know the outcome of some of these. What we don't know is how long they existed after this candlestick was removed. And we talk about this all the time. If, if the Holy Spirit was removed from your church, how long would it take you to tell? Think about it. But the, that answer would be tragic for most churches because they wouldn't know. Because the process of church looks exactly like the process of church last week. Putting on display human abilities, human knowledge, human wisdom in allowing it to function.